So we're in Ephesians 2 today, uh, beginning a new chapter. We call it a new sermon series, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we have a beautiful, wonderful passage today. Uh, so grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians 2 if you can. Uh, love it when you can follow along. Uh, last week when we finished chapter 1, it was kind of this uh, fireworks-like grand finale, anthem of praise regarding uh, the authority and the power and just the majesty of who Christ is. Um, and then today it's going to kind of come back to, to who we are, the condition of, of all mankind, and, and it's going to come back to what God has done on our behalf because of that condition. And so I ask that you listen closely or follow along if you've got the text open. We're going to read uh, the first seven versions, verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, Let's pray. God, we need you to enlighten our, the eyes of our heart this morning. We need you to give us a strong faith in your word. We need you to remind us that we are alive in Christ. And if that's not true of us, we ask that you make us alive together with Jesus, who has conquered death himself. And Heavenly Father, may what I proclaim from your word this morning be quickly forgotten if it is not true. But if it is true... If it's in accord with your word, may it soak into our hearts and, and change us like only you and your word can. May you fill us with gratitude and humility this morning, Lord. Amen. So in my childhood, we had all sorts of, of crazy animals. Uh, I feel sorry my kids don't get the same crazy animals we got. Uh, but when I was in elementary school, I uh, got two pet guinea pigs. One was a big brown guinea pig, and we named him Alf after the, the TV character, if you're old enough to remember it. Uh, and the other one was this white guinea pig, and, and we named her Erin after my brother's ex-girlfriend. Um, it may have contributed to her becoming the ex-girlfriend. I don't know. Um, but these two guinea pigs multiplied, as guinea pigs tend to do, and eventually we had about 10 guinea pigs. And with the help of the Irish girl next door, Sharon O'Brien, uh, we named all 10 of these guinea pigs. And uh, then we began to build this giant castle in our backyard. There was a, uh, a pallet of bricks that was forgotten from some, some home improvement project that never, ever got done. And so we used these, bro these bricks, uh, and this castle had multiple floors, and there were wood things and tunnels and bridges. It was just this amazing, huge guinea pig castle that uh, we thought was amazing. I'm sure it terrified the pigs. Um, but then one day I remember waking up, and, and Alf was the only one who would sleep in my room. He was kind of the special guinea pig, and uh, waking up one day, and, and he wasn't moving, and I, 
I took him and I rushed him to, to my dad and showed him to me. And, and my dad just told me, you know, Alpha's dead. And I continued, you think that's funny. Now, uh, <laughs> uh, I continued to plead with him, you know, let's, let's take him to the vet. You know, what else can we do for this, this guinea pig? And, uh, and he explained to me, the vet can't help him. He's, he's dead. There's nothing we can do. He's just dead. Nobody can change that. And, and that's the situation that, that Paul is, is telling us is spiritually true about us in this passage today. Uh, I titled it, I don't know if you saw that, I titled it The Walking Dead, not because I'm a fan of the TV show, I'm not. I think I saw half of one episode once. Um, you know, but, but because it's a, a good illustration of, a uh, good description of who we are apart from Christ, you know, apart from the life-giving work uh, of God's Spirit in us. You know, though we have this, these physical heartbeats, you know, though we go about living in, in our bodies, though uh, we go about just living our, our lives, we are spiritually simply dead. You know, just like the, the fictional zombies, right? Everyone kind of knows they, uh, they thoughtlessly pursue brains. Um, many people thoughtlessly just go through life pursuing pleasure, pursuing some sort of desire, some, some fame, wealth, success, whatever it might be. And uh, apart from Christ, the truth is every single one of us would absolutely be the walking dead. Um, the word dead there is very significant. Uh, it's very significant because it doesn't imply that, uh, that we are sick and needing of some sort of a doctor. It implies that we are actually dead in need of merely a, a mortician at this point. It's not saying that we're, we're drowning in a lake and, you know, if someone would only throw a life jacket, then you could grab onto it. Uh, you know, to go with that illustration, we are, we are dead lying at the bottom of the lake and we couldn't even grab hold of the life jacket if someone were to throw it to us. You see, in these first three verses, then, we, we see these three different aspects of what it means to be dead in our sin. And the first thing is that we are dead in status. Uh, the second thing is we're dead in practice. And the third thing is that we are, we are dead to the very core of our nature. See, Paul's writing this, and he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to unchristians or non-Christians. He's writing to Christians, and he's reminding them, listen, this is what your status was um, before God gave you faith to believe the gospel. And he says, we, are, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins. Those are two different words that mean essentially the same thing. There is one distinction. Uh, you know, anything that is against God's commandments, whether intentional or not, you might call a sin. Uh, and on the other hand, however, the distinction is that the term trespass has to do with intentional sins, right? Uh, it's the sort of sin that we, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, and, and we think in our mind about it and then continue to do it anyway. You know, it would... Uh, It'd be wrong to lie to her. And then we go wrong, go ahead and lie anyway. Uh, you know, a, a thought-out, intentional rebellion against God. Uh, and as verse 2 unfolds, then we're seeing that, that we're not just sinners in status, but we're actual sinners in actual practice. If you followed any of us around, you would make that real clear real quick. Um, it says, In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, I, I've listened to so many people in my life try to explain to me the idea that, that mankind is, is generally good. And I, I hear that, and I think if, if you mean compared to, to Hitler or Mussolini, then sure. Um, not everyone commits that sort of evil in their life, then, then sure, I, I could agree with you on that level. But, but we're not being compared to Hitler or Mussolini. We're being compared to the law of God. 
You know, we're being compared to actual holiness. That's the standard we're held up to. It's kind of like, uh, you know, someone might think that they have white teeth and they're very happy about their white teeth. And, and that's true if they were to compare it to, a, you know, a stick of butter. Yeah, you have white teeth compared to a stick of butter. But, you know, when compared to something truly white, something that is actually truly white, it becomes clear that, that maybe your teeth are far off. Um, and that's, you know, not only that, but we, we learn in Romans 14, 23, where it says, uh, Paul's writing there, and he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that just adds a whole other dimension to this. You know, if, if we have motives other than the glory of God, when, when helping an old woman carry her groceries, um, well, that's certainly a, a kind act, you know, for sure. We, we've still failed to, to act according to true, actual godliness. Um, and I know that, that sounds harsh. I understand that. Um, but I want us to understand that, that even simply refusing to properly relate to God uh, as creatures should relate to the Creator uh, you know, things like denying his existence, denying God's right to rule over us as our creator. These are active practices of sin. And so then Paul here uses this, this word picture, right? Walking. Um, it's the idea of, you know, of walking, of, of following this worldly path, as he puts it. Uh, walking is a, a very common biblical image that has to do with the way we live, our actual life, our behavior, our decisions, the way we think about things. And, and often in Scripture, this, this word, the world, you know, we know it in general terms, but this, this term world is, is to contrast the ways of God and the ways of, of the world. Um, these are two separate paths, two separate ways of living. And if we walk the path of this world, then we're not walking the path of God. And, and, and that shows us to be dead in our sin. Um, and this text goes on. You know, when I was a, a teenager, my, my father was a, a Christian, but he didn't have a whole lot of, of firsthand knowledge of Scripture yet. And, and I'll never forget him telling me, Brian, the Bible says that Satan controls the TV and the radio stations. And, you know, you see what's on the TV, and you're like, all right, sure. Um, and, and, and I, too, was a new believer at the time. Google didn't exist yet. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I kind of thought, you know, that doesn't quite sound right. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to really push back too quickly, but, you know, the radio wasn't actually invented until about 1,900 years after Paul wrote this. Um, and, and so I kind of pushed back, you know, well, where does it say that, Dad? Um, and it took a long time, but eventually he came back, and, and the answer he brought me was this passage right here where it says um, in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. This, this does refer to Satan, uh, but it does not specifically refer to TV or radio. Uh, these are mediums that can be good for good or evil. Um, they don't necessarily belong to Satan in any way. Uh, it's uh, this general idea, though, that, that Satan has some influence in the world as, as we currently live. Uh, it's uh, a phrase that's used almost like you might use the phrase, you know, love, love is in the air, right? It's, uh, it's present here. There's an aspect to it. Um, and, and that's the idea here. But, you know, the truth is, I think talking about Satan can be a little strange. We've all heard so many crazy ideas of, of who Satan is. Uh, I think it's, it's fair to say right off the bat, you know, uh, we tend to be on the more logical side of things, but uh, Satan is real. Satan is a, a spiritual being, um, but Satan is not even close to being unequal with God. When you see him in cartoons like they're equals, that is far from reality. Um, 
He is not equal in power or authority or any other way. He was created by God, an angel who became rebellious. Uh, Satan knows for sure that his destruction is certain, and yet, for whatever reason, uh, God allows Satan to still exist. It is quite a mystery to us as to why. Uh, scripture speaks of Satan oft often. Uh, John 12, 31 describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Matthew 9, 34 speaks of, uh, gives, gives him this title, the prince of demons. Uh, oddly enough, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 just kind of creepily refers to Satan as the god of this world. Not the world, but this world, this, this aspect. Uh, and, and how Satan influences people is a bit of a mystery, and yet we do know that he does. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 is real clear. It says, your adversary, the devil, <clears throat> prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. See, there's this, this, this powerful lie that, that Satan is behind. And it's a, a lie that every sin ultimately tells us, uh, communicates to us. And the lie is this, that, that sin will give you pleasure, sin will give you joy that is greater than the pleasure, greater than the joy that you will get from following the Lord. Um, you know, put some examples. You know, that, that sexual sin promises uh, to satisfy your desires, and it is a lie. Sure, it will deliver pleasure for a moment, that part's true, but outside uh, a proper godly context, it cannot, will not satisfy. And if you're in Christ, it will only further serve to, to drive a wedge relationally between you and your Heavenly Father, who deeply loves you. See, the, lies, the lie that sin tells us manifests itself in, in many ways, and, uh, you know, <clears throat> but always offering that same promise of, of satisfaction, of, of joy that it simply cannot fulfill. You know, that's why good things can sometimes be, be shown to us in a lying manner. You know, if I, if I had money, if I had a husband, if I had child, a child, if I had the, that promotion, then, then I would be satisfied in life. If I tell this, you know, if I if I tell this lie to, to, to this person, you know, I can hide my sin from them and, and they'll still be respect me and, and such. You know, if in my, my anger I can I can tear into that person, just rip into them, tell them what I want to say. If I can do that, then then I'm gonna feel good. My my uh, I'll feel powerful, the weight will be off my shoulders, and, and that's just not the truth, you know, because if there's any work of the spirit in your life, then then you're not gonna feel powerful in that moment, you're gonna feel regret. I think it's important as Christians that we understand the, the limitations of Satan. I think too often, uh, as we think of Satan, there's too much power uh, given to him. That's just not true. You know, we cannot blame Satan for our sin. I remember hearing a story about a little girl who uh, pushed her little brother down and then kicked him in the head. Ever seen that before? Uh, and her mother was, was upset. She watched it happen, and, and she asked her, you know, why would you do such an evil thing? And this, this girl told her, the devil made me push him down. And after a few moments, she, she, the little girl added, but it was me who kicked him in the head. <laughs> the devil can't make us do anything. Um, but the devil is a tempter. The devil is absolutely a, a tempter. And, and so we ought to, you know, <clears throat> not use him as an excuse for our own sin, but, but do understand that that temptation can be detrimental to us, to our walk. So what we're seeing here then so far is that we are sinners in status, status and we are sinners in practice. And then going deeper to our core, it comes, becomes clear uh, that we enter the world with a sinful nature. And that's, that's why it says that the life we once lived was in passions of our flesh. It says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. 
See, after the fall of, of Adam in the garden, following our, we begin following our, our fleshly and intellectual desires. You know, it's, it's part of our nature, our, our sinful nature. People speak often of this idea of, of nature versus, versus nurture. We, we see things in, in children and, and animals and such and wonder, was it nature, was it nurture? And what they mean by this is that there are some things that uh, we need to be taught to do, things that we learn, and some things that we just naturally do. Uh, a clear example of, of nature would be blinking your eyes. Uh, no one, you know, pulls their children aside and are like, okay, so every once in a while you got to blink your eyes or they're going to get dry. You know, it's just something you do. It's nature. Um, brushing teeth, on the other hand, is something that must be taught. It's nurture. No child in the history of the world has ever brushed their teeth naturally, you know, without being taught so. And even after being taught so, they rarely do it. Um, so to say something is by nature is to say it has this, this natural inclination from birth. It's, it's who they are at the core. Uh, house cats even have this, this nature aspect. Uh, things that they do by some inborn instinct as opposed to something they were taught. We have this, this cat named Mr. Nubbers. He has this little stub tail. He looks kind of like a bobcat. Uh, and, and Mr. Nubbers is kind of like a stuffed animal when our kids hold him. Uh, just kindness can be wonderful. Uh, and yet he'll go outside and, and then he turns into this just fierce predator killing everything he can. Uh, you know, mice and moles. And he brings them to show us, you know, look what I have done. Um, and, you know, we even watched him one time catch a bird in mid-flight. Thinking, that thing sleeps in my daughter's bed. Uh, <laughs> just instinct. You know, he's got a bowl of food inside waiting for him with some specially crafted food for him. And yet he's outside killing things. Um, you know, that's the nature of the cat. It is hardwired who he is built into him. And, that, and that's, the, the point is that, you know, the, that we sin because we have this sinful nature as a result of the fall of Adam. It has so affected us through and through that it is right to the core of our very nature. And that, that sinful nature, that sinful status leading to our, our sinful practice leaves us rightly deserving the wrath of God. I know there is a, a cultural objection to this idea. You know, even Lady Gaga's song, I Was Born This Way, is, is meant to abolish responsibility. And well, yes, you were born this way. No one's arguing that. But that doesn't get us off the hook for our sin. It just doesn't. Um, in 1893, Chicago, the city, hosted the the World's Fair, and at the same time, or at that time, there was this man by the name of Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, and H.H. H. Holmes built this hotel. And it wasn't a normal hotel. It had soundproof rooms, a hanging room. Uh, there were gas chambers built into some of the walls. There was a big furnace in the basement where he could burn away any evidence he needed to burn away. Holmes was, you know, probably the first serial killer, at least the first one the media got any, hand, any attention to. Uh, he was believed to have murdered upwards of 200 people, mostly young women. Um, eventually, Holmes was caught. And when they asked him about why he did this, what he did, what he said in response was this. He said, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than a poet can help the inspiration to sing. That was his excuse. You see, our, our sinful nature absolutely condemns us just as much as our sinful actions. And while most likely, boy, I hope this is true, you're not as despicable as, as Dr. H.H. H. Holmes to the degree, you know, and the degree to which you sin, it is certainly absolutely true that the way that you and I hear that story of Holmes and look at him, 
uh, a holy God could look at us and, and view us that way in our natural state. Sure, we are, we are born in this world as these, these sweet little babies, and, and yet we are still born spiritually dead, having a sinful nature. You know, God, uh, Paul's not speaking here, you know, merely of some, some idea in our head of, you know, the people worse than us, some drugged out criminals or terrorists or whatever it is, you know, uh, you want to think about in society. He's talking about everybody in society, everyone. And that's why Paul has this statement, you know, we were like the rest of mankind. That was us too. He's including us. You know, it says Romans 5.12 teaches us just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, all of this is looking back on our life, right? Uh, he's looking back to before we trusted, trusted in Jesus. And, and Paul remembers a life where we followed whatever the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and the desires of our mind sought after. And, and what becomes absolutely clear is, is that we have no ability to save ourselves. Do you understand that the depths of our deadness apart from Christ? See, in our, our natural state, we are not sick patients in the hospital. We are toe-tag corpses in the morgue. If God were, were only just and not loving, if he wasn't faithful to his covenant, if he wasn't a, a promise-keeping God, then, then the story could absolutely end right there, put a period at the end of this, close the book, it's over. However, our God is more than merely just. He has love for his people. He keeps his covenants. He, he makes promises and he follows through with them. And, and all of this leads God into actual action. And that's where this text changes. This is where God does something. And it happens so quickly in the text that it almost gives you whiplash as you're reading past it. You see it there, that, that phrase, but God there is so much hope packed in those two words. But God. But God what? Um, well, it says that God is rich. He is absolutely loaded, right? Not with money here, but he is absolutely loaded with mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Uh, it's often confused with grace. We use the words interchangeable. They're both things that God does to us, gives to us. Um, we're going to see grace in verse 7 today. But, but mercy is when God does not punish us as our sin deserves. Uh, we deserve his judgment and wrath, and yet God withholds it. And so, so we're dead in our sins. We cannot save ourselves, but God is rich in mercy. He is rich in this desire. He is rich in the means uh, in, in, uh, to not punish us as we deserve. And so why? You hear that, and hopefully you wonder why. It says, you know, why is God rich in mercy to us? And verse 4 tells us, because of the great love with which he loved us. Uh, that's the, the same idea with, with the most famous verse in all of Scripture, the one that shows up at wrestling matches and monster truck things and everything in between. You know, John 3.16, for, for God so loved the world. That's the motivation for what flows after that part of the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, there was a, a point in my life when I didn't fully understand Christianity, uh, and my understanding was something like this, like, uh, so after I start being good, then, then God will start loving me. And, and this passage makes so clear, no, 
That's, that's not it at all. Nothing like that. Because look, verse 5, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see that there in verse 5? We, we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. Saint, Saint Augustine, or Augustine, if you don't want to call him Saint, once wrote, uh, The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. This is regeneration. You know, all, all people on earth really belong to these, these two broad categories, those who are dead in their sin and those who are resurrected and alive in Jesus Christ. That, that's it. Dead in sin, alive in Christ. There is no other category. And since we're born spiritually dead, before we can believe the message of the gospel, we must be made spiritually alive. And that's what God does for us. Romans 5.8 summarizes this beautifully when Paul writes, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 5 in our, our passage then ends with that amazing statement, by grace you have been saved. We're not going to dig in that today because it's going to be, we're going to get into it more fully in, in two weeks when we get to the next portion of Ephesians. Uh, so we're going to move past it to verse 6 today, which says um, that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see, because, because Jesus was risen from the dead or has raised from the dead, that same power is breathing life into us and we are being raised from, our, uh, from being dead in our sin to being alive in Christ. And then verse 7 begins with that purpose statement, so that. Anytime you see that in Scripture, those words always indicate some purpose is coming afterwards, so that. Uh, and here God is given the reason for giving us eternal life. And what's it say there? It says, so that, so that in the coming ages, that includes now, uh, that includes everything moving forward all throughout all of eternity. In the coming ages, God is going to show something. And, and, and that's where we come in because this is the, uh, you know, in this case, God is showing the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know what immeasurable is, right? Cannot be measured. If I sent you out and said, you know, go count all the sand in, in the, on the beach or the Kansas River, you'd come back and be like, I can't do it. There's too much sand. Um, you know, you can't even begin to do that. God's grace to us is so abundant that it cannot be measured. Um, and, and then while we learned about mercy earlier, you know, that it's not receiving the wrath that we do deserve, speaks of grace here. Uh, grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve, that we are unworthy of receiving from him, and yet we do receive it. He is giving us eternal life. He's giving us a, a place in his kingdom. He is, he is giving us a heavenly father who, who loves us, who hears our prayers. He is giving us a church family. He is giving us the Holy Spirit. And that's just to name a few of the things that God has graciously given to us. And God is, is not just <clears throat> putting on display the truth that he is rich in mercy. He's just not putting on display that he is rich in grace and kindness, but, but in the gospel he shows that, that he is generous. He is generous with what he has. And so God finds us dead in our sin, and Jesus lays down his life so that new life can be breathed into us, and, and, and we can be united to Christ and live with him forever. And, and that just sets up perfectly these next three verses that we'll get to next time. But you know, before we finish, I do want to address one thing, one aspect here. <clears throat> that I think becomes clear. You, you hear a passage like this. It talks a lot about our, our old way of life and our new way of life, right? That uh, we used to walk in the trespasses of our sin and, and now we're alive in Christ. 
Um, and it begs this question, why do I still sin? You know, maybe, maybe you hear this and you begin to fear, you know, that, that stress in your heart, you know, but, but I do still struggle against sin. Does that mean I'm, I'm spiritually dead? Am, am I a zombie and just don't know it? And, and we'll get into this more later in, in this, this book, but you need to know that your struggle against sin is a sign that you are alive in Christ because dead bodies don't wrestle. And neither do dead souls. The very fact that you are wrestling against sin is a sign that God is at work in you. And so keep pursuing holiness and, and take time to praise God when, when you don't sin as much as you could or as much as you once did. That's progress, you know. You've got to understand that, that sanctification are actually becoming holy, actually becoming more like Christ. That is a process that is way slower than any of us want it to be. But it's a process, right? It's in process. And so, so how do we live now? Well, we honor the Lord. We repent when we do sin. We, we hope in Christ. We rest in the gospel. We worship God. That's why we gather on a, a morning like this. We put on display the abundant mercy and, and the grace and the kindness of our Lord. And so these seven verses we've been in today are, are just one of the greatest summaries of, uh, of the gospel and all of Scripture. You see, in a, in a sense, it's this, um, Paul sets it up then like this, that classic question. Do you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? How many of you are bad news people first? Nobody? One. Two. Okay. <clears throat> I am. I am always. Give me the bad news first. Let me hear that first. Paul is too. And Paul gives the first news here. He opts for the bad news first. And, and what we learn is that we, you and me, every man and woman born at any time on this planet, we are born spiritually dead. We are scoundrels. We are self-exalting rebels. We are um, self-centered prodigals, vile, evil, unholy, deceptive, and, and just unfaithful charlatans. That's the bad news. So you want to hear the good news. But God. The good news is, but God. You, you know, we were born dead, but God revived us. He made us alive in Jesus Christ. But God loves us, the unlovable. But God showers us with his mercy. But God pours out his grace and kindness lavishly upon us. But God, but God, but God. And what do we do? Well, we live. We, we, we put on display for all creatures the, the glory of God as it is manifested in his merciful and his gracious love for us. That's what we do. You know, knowing the grace of God in this way, when, when you really see it this way from dead to life and it's a work of God in that way, this, this ought to create in us, you know, it ought to create in our personal lives and the culture of this church just an unmistakable humility. Because it's not, it's not you, it's not me, it's God. So the, the truth is, you and I and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus would continue to be dead in our sin if it were not for the grace of God who made us alive in Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray.